I was in a screening in Boston and there was a guy in the, like there was this huge line and there was, you know, a big group of people and an aisle down the middle. And we did the screening and then I did a really long Q&A and then a bunch of people, um, then there was like a reception. And so um, this was, you know, about 200-ish people in this room. And, you know, they waited on, in the aisle all the way back to the back of the room. And I remember seeing a guy and like, he was one of the catering guys in the back serving Coke and Pepsi's and not RC, because I think they went out of business. But anyway, you know, cocktails. And um, he waited in line and I was like, I wonder what he wanted to see. <laughs> and he came up to me and literally he just said, I am, I wasn't supposed to work tonight. Like, um, like they called me last minute and I've been having a really hard time because I was adopted from Guatemala into a family that's not Latino. And my whole life, I didn't know where I fit in. And then I get called tonight to be here to see this movie. And I just had to come up to you and say, thank you. And right. And if I told you that like that happened so many times, there were so many times, so many different people, so many different stories over the course of three years, because then the pandemic hit in year four. But yeah. after a while, um, it's like unquestionable. This makes a difference. Mi gente, dímelo, dímelo, what up? Welcome to another episode of the Quien Tu Eres podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know it's your boy Pavel, bring you another episode with another very special guest. Now, the clip you just heard in the intro was with this week's guest, Denise Soler Cox. Before getting into the full episode, let me give you a little bit of a quick bio on Denise. So after going from a stay-at-home mom to an award-winning activist filmmaker, top 100 podcaster, and sought-after Fortune 500 speaker, Denise uses her experience to transform lives through storytelling. In 2014, she co-founded Project Enya, a multimedia production company whose purpose is to transform how we think about culture, identity, and what it means to belong. NBC Latino actually calls Denise a voice for first-generation Latinos. In September 2020, Denise was recognized as a feature host by Apple Podcasts North America for her podcast, The Selfish Latina, which has listeners in 32 countries. Denise has been invited to speak at over 150 stages, including two TEDx talks, and has worked with some of the world's most recognized brands, some including Microsoft, Facebook, LinkedIn, Starbucks, and VaynerMedia, to name a few. Now that you know a little bit more about Denise, let's get into the episode. Um, I remember we had an earlier conversation, like in our prep call, and you were like, have you seen my film? And I was like, no, but I want to see it. And then I saw it. And I was like, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you. It's literally everything you touched on so many points. And it was, it was so emotional, even watching it, because when you were explaining the project and everything that you were doing, people got an emotional reaction and said like, oh my God, I've never spoken about this. And they just felt so seen and heard for the first time. It was so powerful. So it's funny. I always ask this question to start off the podcast. And I feel like you're already going to say like a one word answer. Like I'm an Enya, right? But <laughs> I always start off with this question, right? Like when people tell you to be your most authentic self or when you hear the word authenticity, you know, what does that mean for you specifically? 
Yeah, so here's here's what it means, and I know that that's what you ask your people, and I was actually thinking about it, like, what would I say? What would I say to this? And I, um, I'll speak for myself, and that there used to be many versions of Denise. Denise at work, Denise at home, Denise with my husband, with my family, uh, in the neighborhood, at church, and I had a different Denise to kind of, um, in all honesty, like survive and win, like wherever I was in all of those places. And it was something that was so automatic that I just like was there immediately, right? And then I started working on this film and I started meeting people and really only showing my, what, what I later realized was my most authentic self which is talking about real stuff and very specifically about Latinidad, about uh, overcoming obstacles uh, with identity and culture and belonging. I am really my most authentic me when I talk about these things. And what happened was all that kind of authenticity spilled over into all those different versions until I realized, wow, I'm only expressing one version of me, which is my favorite version and so when i say when i hear that question um i think it's the favorite version of me and i also recognize it's very difficult to get to unless you have a bridge to that and for me making the film and being in a very condensed period of time where i was meeting so many people willing to have authentic conversations with me is what did it I know. And it was beautiful seeing that journey. And I definitely want to get to the point where eventually I want to get to the point where you found out who you were in, you know, in the midst of all these conversations, but let's, let's even take a step back. Right. Like you said, there were so many different versions of you. Right. And you said such an interesting word is like survive. And when I thought, when I thought about survival, I instantly thought about your early years um, in the Bronx and like, for those people that don't know, you know, the Bronx, because not everyone's from New York, like, tell me a little bit about the environment where you grew up in, a lot of people that look like you, like, just paint that picture for us. Yeah, so I actually, I'm from the Bronx originally, I was born in Manhattan, and my parents took us home uh, to a two-bed apartment in the Bronx, actually, incidentally, very close to where Sonia Sotomayor grew up, like, literally right across the street, uh, for whoever, you know, cares to know that, uh, but anyway, um, we moved when I was four years old because I was sharing a room with my two brothers. And I remember my mom specifically saying, we're moving because of you. <laughs> no way. In the movie, yeah, the, the main catalyst uh, that my mom said, I don't know, closer to the time that we made the movie was, we moved the second time that my brother's bike got stolen. Mm -hmm. But the message that I heard my whole life was, we moved because of you because it's not appropriate for a little Latina girl to be sharing a room with her two brothers. And so it's because Denise needed her own room. And so I really have all my kind of formative memories growing up in what's called the country, uh, which is really just upstate New York, but everybody that lives in New York calls it the country, which is so funny. But anyway, um, we, all my parents' friends lived in the Bronx. So we were constantly back and forth to parties, events, and then they went to church in Spanish Harlem. And so that didn't change for many, many years. Every Sunday we made the drive. So it was an hour-ish into the city every Sunday. And then we would stay for hours and then maybe go to my Titi's house in the Bronx for a late lunch and then head home in the late afternoon. And so it was, um, and it was a very inter interesting experience 
for many reasons. And I would say because I'm the most light skinned person in my family, I was uh, always compared to that. Like that was just like always like a running joke, like how uh, hincha I am. And that in, in Puerto Rican say hincha, it means without color, like devoid of color. And I remember thinking, I don't like being called that. And what does that really mean? And they were like, oh, it just means you're white. And then later on, I heard that. I was like, no wonder why it never felt good. Because I felt like, do they think that I don't, like devoid of color felt like devoid of culture mm-hmm. and devoid of uh, my own cultural experience, right? Because that's such a marker of, um, well, for many people, the struggle. And we, I, you know, we attacked that one right away in the film. And um, anyway, so... It was also amazing and awesome, and Omar and Augie, my two brothers from another mother, uh, it was when I got a chance to see them. And so it was kind of like always reconnecting, like every week, reconnecting with this part of myself that slowly I became detached from. And and church was a big part of that. So my uh, parents decided that they didn't want to do the drive, especially in the winter, in the New York winters. So they found a church in a place called Yorktown, which is incidentally where um, AOC is from. She went to high school really close to where I went to high school. And um, anyway, she's from there. It sounds like I'm name dropping, but I'm not. I'm just giving people like points of reference. Okay, I'm not a jerk. I promise. But uh, anyway, um, so we went to church there. And I feel like the church was a big point. You know, it was such a big point of connection um, to all these people that, um that in many ways felt like we left them behind and uh, and then kind of grew into a new identity. And so, yeah, Denise uh, at the Church of the Good Neighbor was always grilled on my Spanish, was always grilled on all things related to culture, right, after the church service. And, uh, and then Denise in Yorktown at the Yorktown Presbyterian Church, which also was in the film, um, was trying to figure out who I was in the context of all the whiteness that was there. And, you know, looking a lot like them, but not at all feeling like them or experiencing my life like them. Yeah, no, it's so, it's so interesting, too, because, you know, a lot of what I talk about is, you know, this, this struggle between, or the conflict that we often face in like professional settings between authenticity and professionalism, right? And then, you know, when we, when we're in spaces where people don't look like us or talk like us, we often code switch. But I think that's just an easy example or an easy reference to call out when we start code switching. But many of us, you know, it's just biology, right? Like we want to be part of a group. And I think many of us start code switching and start just changing a little bit of who we are in order to fit in at a very early age, right? Um, did you go through some, you, tell me a little about, about some of those challenges when you moved to, to Westchester and like that identity crisis almost. Yeah, definitely. So I didn't, you know, and I agree. Like, I think sometimes people use the word code switching, like it's this thing that we have to do uh, without really recognizing it's more of an automatic thing that we do. And it has more to do with literally surviving, like in social environments. It's not like, oh, now I'm going to act like this. It's just like, oh, I acted like that. Oh, okay. And then make, you know, you can make a new decision about how you might do it in the future, but it's not really conscious until it is. And so you know, it was for me a lot around food um, when I started realizing that I was different. So my mom makes the most amazing flan 
ever. And I know uh, anyone who's listening, I know that your mom makes the best flan ever, but really my mom makes the best flan. (laughs) (laughs) And so at any family party, it's like, you know, like, um, it's funny people that are in Latino, I notice that they, they don't, they're not like us. They don't do it like us. So like if I'm invited to a friend's house, they're like, Oh, Denise, can you bring an appetizer and a dessert? And I was like, uh, I'm like, sure. Yeah. Bring it. You know, when, when we can get back into that world again. Uh, but in my family, it's like Loling. That's what my mom's nickname is. Loling brings the flan. Blanca brings the con gandule. Um, uh, Diana makes the cafe con leche. Lourdes makes, you know, like everybody has their dish. And so everybody brings their famous dish. And then everyone knows what to expect. And it's like this whole event and this whole, so, so much fun ceremony around the whole thing, right? So when I was in fourth grade, there was a big event at my school and uh, we were invited to bring food uh, to share. It was like, bring your family's favorite dish or I don't know. Something like a potluck. And, yeah, like a school potluck. And, uh, and I didn't have to think twice about what I was going to bring. And so, and you know, the whole family was going to go. And I asked my mom to make her flan and it's, and making flan is a thing. And it takes my mom, it's like, you know, she knows it. it's super easy, but transporting the flan is like a thing, you know? And like, you have to, you know, she has to put it on her lap and then, you know, the, the caramel and it can't swish around too much or it gets on her clothes. <laughs> and so she put a towel, like it's a whole thing. Right. And yeah, so yeah. Uh, we did the whole thing. We went, presented the flan. And we presented it next to chocolate chip cookies, brownies, Rice Krispie treats. And I kept checking the table and no one was touching the flan. And of course, I wasn't allowed to have any flan because it was like we were presenting our culture, you know? So I'm not allowed to have a piece. This is for the people at school. And so I was sitting there mouth watering and I couldn't have any, my family didn't have any. So it literally sat untouched. And I remember my friends came over so I could show them the flan. And um, they said, ew, what is that? That looks gross. You eat that? And it was literally my first memory of feeling shame and embarrassment um, around food. I have an earlier memory of language, but that one was about food. And I remember thinking, how, like, how it could this be happening right now? And, um, and I did this uh, seminar a long time ago and they called that moment, like a break in belonging. It's when you're kind of just living your your life and we usually have two or three before we're like 10 years old and you realize I don't belong here. Like you make a decision. I don't belong here. Right. And it could be anything, anything at all that triggers that. And for me, it was the flan. And so you think I ever bought flan ever again? No way. And my mom, of course, we're not going to throw away the flan. We're going to bring the flan home, but my, we never brought flan home. And when flan cools down and when that caramel it gets even more, I don't know, sticky or gooey or liquefy or whatever, um, she had to carry the flan back to the car on her lap. And I just remember feeling so embarrassed. Like, um, I can't describe it, but it was like, oh my gosh, the caramel is getting on her clothes. This is terrible. Like, what a terrible night. And I was in fourth grade, you know, but I'll never forget it. And now, right? And so never brought that cultural food again to anything. 
But now it's like my favorite dish and I use my mother's recipe and I share that story uh, to let people know, like, this is like, uh, first of all, most people, most Latinas will have a story like that. They will have a fun story and then they get to relive it and they get a chance to kind of make a new decision, you know? So for me, it's like, I'm going to present my mother's blood and oftentimes share the story if they haven't heard it and, um, and give people a minute of pause uh, to think about and just reflect on the, des the decisions that we make, right? And then the opportunity that we get to make new ones. Thank you for sharing that story. And don't ever leave your mom's flan around me. I will destroy that whole plate. Uh, flan and flan and, uh, and tres leche cake. Oh my gosh. Oh my I will gosh, eat a whole tray. <laughs> that is so funny. I love that. I love that. And like, even to this day, I'm not allowed to have a big piece because she only makes one. And then everybody just gets like this tiny little sliver yeah. and then it's gone. No seconds. And now my kids love her flan. So forget it. They get served before me. It's a whole thing. And I, and I just love it. <laughs> no, but that, that is so fascinating around that. The research that was done around like two to three moments before you're 10 years old. Like, I don't think people realize how young 10 years old is. And that's a, like someone will say I'm dramatic, but I think that's a traumatic experience for someone, you know what I mean? Right? Mm -hmm. Like what sort yeah. of impact did that have on you after that? Like maybe not consciously, but maybe unconsciously, maybe like, did you think about how do you show up on a daily basis? Like at school? Yeah. Well, so um, what that would be classified as, because I'm also fascinated with the trauma elements to belonging and, and identity as well. And that would be considered like a small T, they call it a small T trauma. So like flan, like it, 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 it's like a throwaway uh, thing, but no, it actually is, uh, it's a traumatic thing if I had a traumatic response and I did. And so from that point forward, never again did I believe that I belonged there. And then it was just uh, uh, what, you know, there's a saying death by a thousand paper cuts. Uh, you know, there were, I don't know how many hundreds of other incidences, kind, you know, big, small, mostly small though, right? Um, that happened from that point forward to confirm my belief that I didn't belong. And that's how this happens. It doesn't happen like, you know, we're not shunned, you know, the bullying that I went through, that's big T, right? That didn't happen until later, until I already believed. They don't like, I don't know why they don't like me, but I'm pretty sure it's because of Puerto Rican, right? That's all I could think of. Um, and, and, and of course they called me racial slurs, so that helped too, <laughs> but like, uh, oh, the, yeah, you spoke about that on yeah. the film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so all of those things kind of compound. And so it's like, yeah, it's not, it's no shock. No one should be shocked to find out that, um, that Latinos growing up here, um, have to deal with some measure of this, whether it's big T or little T. Um, and wonder why at a screening of mine, they can't stop crying. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, or when they, when they're talking about this, even like in an interview setting with me, some of these people, uh, a lot of them guys, uh, couldn't mm -hmm. stop crying, you know? And, uh, and it was so beautiful to be able to share that moment with them. And I'm, I'm personally forever grateful for those, for the time they gave me, but also for the, um, their willingness to be so authentic. I remember uh, doing an interview with um, an actor named Yancy Arias. Like, I didn't know 
uh, who he was like by name, but as soon as I saw his face, I'm like, oh my God, that guy is in everything. And he didn't know who we were. He like, it was like a friend uh, contacted him and kind of vouched for us and said that we were at this hotel interviewing people. And I could tell he was reluctant and maybe even doing a favor to that friend to show up. And I remember asking him like, how, how much time do we have so I can respect your time? And he was like, um, uh, uh, no more than uh, 30 minutes. And so I was like, oh great. Cause like, I'm brand new to this. It takes me forever to get warmed up, let alone. And I like recognize him, he's a star, right? And after an hour, he was like, oh, I can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> And we just gave each other a big hug after and, uh, you know, cause it's like, you don't know, you know, this stuff's really hard and it's like hard to strike up these types of conversations and wonder like how someone's going to respond. But, um, but uh, yesterday, this is my final thought on this. Yesterday I was on the phone with someone and she said, you know, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I feel dot, dot, dot. And like basically everything we just talked about. And I'm like, let me stop you there and tell you it's not just you. <laughs> And it's not just me. It's actually all of us. And I'm here to tell you, all of us feel this way. Some might feel it more intensely. Some might feel it less intensely. But I have yet to meet someone as in our culture that doesn't feel some measure of disconnection, some measure of lack of belonging, feeling like we're on the outside in, wondering where it is that we belong. And... Um, and so it's absolutely normal. And these types of conversations are the ones that set us free because they're the ones that give us a minute to pause and think about it. And hopefully after someone watches or listens to our interview, um, they take a second to talk about it with somebody. And every conversation heals the soul. Everyone. Yeah. I remember uh, like someone told me I was having a conversation with them and they said, you know, it's, it's, interesting, like so many people go through some of those challenges, but not everyone starts a podcast about it. Not everyone launches a company about it. And they asked me sort of like, why did I do it? Right. And I said, well, I remember feeling some of those feelings and I remember feeling very alone. And I want, I didn't, I never wanted someone else to feel alone. Like, was that part of your mission in making the film? Like wanting other people to not feel alone in some of those feelings? Yes. And it's funny. It's actually great to talk to you because it's um we're like a rare breed. It's like why would someone take their whole life to yeah. do this? And the thing is, it's so healing. Like it's so great to be that person, but it also feels like I I don't know what else I would do with my life. Like I really don't. Like this is really the only thing I want to do. And um and for me to have held it in for so long, like I had the idea when I was 26, and I made it a pact with myself when I was 26, I'm going to make a movie. And I had no experience and I didn't even, I didn't go to school and I knew no one who had made a movie, but for some reason I knew in my heart, this was a movie. And for 17 years, I put it off because I just thought I'm not, I'm not the right person for this. Like my heart said, yes. And my logical mind was like, who do you think you are? <laughs> you know, like you can't do this. And, um, and so, yeah, so my, when I finally pitched it to my now partner, he actually called it a compulsion. And he's like, I don't mean to be insulting, but it's like the best word to describe you, Denise, because I really can't explain why. Because um, the last five years of my life since this movie has been out has been such a gift. Uh, but I really didn't know um, how it was going to land, frankly. I just, I didn't. 
but I did know that no matter what, I had to do it. And to this day, I can't explain it. All I can say is, is that um, when anyone feels that, right, and you feel it with this podcast, which is so needed, like someone had to do it, and I'm so glad it was you, because I love listening to your podcast. And, um, and like, you know, if you feel like you're that someone, it's really important to see it through. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, I, I love the film. It was, it, uh, like you said, I think we just start, ha- needs to start having some of those conversations. And it's interesting too, that you mentioned that you didn't have any experience going into this. Like that, that was one of the thought process that I had while watching the movie. I was, I looked up on LinkedIn. I was like, oh my God, like, has she always been doing like films and documentary? Like <laughs> what did she go to school for all these sort of things? Like, I, I'm so curious, like, what were some of those feelings going into it? Because it's your first time going into this industry, right? And kind of like that Westchester example, if you looked around, like th- there weren't many people that looked like you that were from where you were from that were even making documentaries. You know what I mean? Like, did you feel like, yeah. I know, for example, like I remember when I went into tech or like I started working at Facebook, I was like, I hit imposter syndrome, like immediately. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, were those some of those, like what sort of feelings came up for you when you started some of this? Yeah. So it's so funny when you just said that, it made me realize like, of course, I mean, so yeah. So was I scared to do it? Yes, of course I was. Um, but I will say like, um, externally, I was very stuck in the how, like, but how do I do it? How would I do this? Right. And I spent a lot of time there internally. It was like, um, who the hell do you think you are to do this? You're not Latina, Latino enough to do it. Your Spanish is imperfect. You haven't read all the books. You don't know all your history. Like all the things that all that, all the annoying people. I hate, if you're one of those people, I'm sorry, but it's really annoying when you say learn your history. It annoys me. And the thing is, when people say that, it pushes people, it pushes the artists back, Mm -hmm. right? We can't lean in because we're already super sensitive. And if we think you're going to like post that on our, on our wall, like that's very scary to someone like me. And I'm going to tell you right now, I got held back because of that for all the reasons that the that haters and trolls say stuff that are that criticize people right and now fyi people say stuff like that to me and some of it hurts but most of it doesn't okay so uh so yeah i did feel very much held back but it wasn't anything external it was very much internal and um the part that connects to what you said is that, yeah, because I was the other, because I was different my whole life, um, even different in Puerto Rico, you know? So different on both sides of the uh, belonging fence, both sides, right? Um, So because of that, that muscle of just doing stuff anyway was already, already exercised. It had been to the gym many, many times. I was a little girl going to that gym without even realizing it. And that gave me strength. Now, I was terrified for 17 years, right? But when I finally made the decision to do it, it's like, okay, I know what this feels like. I know I'm going to be uncomfortable for a while, and that's okay. And funny story about being brand new to filmmaking, I remember getting an email. My partner and I, my creative partner, who produced the film and directed the film with me, um, and I were walking down in downtown Denver and we we're walking to the car from getting lunch and we got an email from our, our post-production supervisor his name is Miguel and he had sent us a scene and um, he said we just need some roll and this scene is going to be great because <laughs> it was like an interview and he said we just need some roll 
And I literally read it out loud. I'm like, Henry, he, this is what he said. What's parole? And Henry started laughing his ASS off. I'm like, what is parole? <laughs> and he's like, it's B-roll, D. B-roll, yeah. B-roll, right? I'm like, what's B-roll? And he's like, observational footage. And I like, so here's the thing that is about this. And this is just like the irony of ironies, right? So like I did, I'm like super into personal growth. And I did a seminar once. And one of the things uh, that you learn is like the feeling that you most hate feeling. Like the emotion that you most avoid feeling, right? And for me, guess what it was? Embarrassment. What a mm -hmm. shocker, right? So mm -hmm. like I will do anything to avoid feeling embarrassed. And so that obviously goes contrary to starting something new. So no wonder why I waited so long, right? So um, I remember getting like this swoosh of heat from head to toe um, after when I saw him laughing at me and saying what it was and thinking, how many times have I made this mistake in front of people on our payroll that wouldn't have laughed, that would have just been like, she has no clue what she's doing, right? Mm -hmm. And I, it was like one of those, like, I quit. I'm, I'm, I'm running in a cave. I will see you in a few <laughs> years. I can't handle this. And like, yeah. so it, this happened a handful of times. And it honestly still does. Because filmmaking is just one of those things. Like, I've now been doing it for seven years. I still feel new. And I, there's yeah. so much more to learn. And, uh, but now I'm like, okay, that I don't know the jargon and the words and the editing and the all, like people are like, oh, so you know how to edit? I'm like, nope, I know how to sit behind my editor and tell her what <laughs> I need, but I don't know the program. I mean, like, I don't even, I don't, I know um, so much less technical jargon than maybe some other filmmakers with a whole film out than I do, um, but I didn't let it stop me. And so, so that is going to come along in the journey. And that's just like part of it. But when I, when I had that experience, I was like, wow, okay, I'm embarrassed. Okay. Feelings last 90 seconds, letting that feeling ride, riding out the feeling, <laughs> letting it ride. And then luckily it happened with him. And of course we were such good friends. He laughed. like him laughing was fine with me. Cause then I could laugh at myself and move on. And now it's literally like a joke in the office. And so, um, <laughs> What could have stopped me then now is a joke. And it's funny to me too. Yeah. Well, well, it's so interesting because it, you know, obviously probably had something to do with like you growing up. Right. And like that embarrassing moment, even with it, with the cake and then you attaching so much to that specific feeling. And it's interesting too. Like I've, I've sped, I've said this on a, on a previous episode, but I think like within our culture, like we can do so much of a better job of, like not just sharing that embarrassment or that shame over to people. Like there's so many rooms. I, I, I don't know. I feel like within certain Latino cultures, Latina, Latinx cultures, it's just like, there's so many qualifiers that people throw at you to say like, are you enough? Are you enough? You know what I mean? Like, were you born there? How well is your Spanish? Oh no, that's not Spanish. That's Dominican. That's a whole other separate language. <laughs> like, you don't know. <laughs> Can you dance? Can you? It, there are like so many qualifiers for us to say like, okay, yes, you passed the test. You can do that now. Whereas like, um, you know, I, so I, I identify as black as well. So sometimes like if I'm in space with like people that are black that aren't necessarily um, identified as Latino, like there isn't that qualifier. So I feel sometimes even more comfortable. Like you said something earlier, I'm sorry, not earlier, but in the documentary that stuck with me so much. It was um, 
like the hardest rejection is the one, no, the rejection from my own community hurts the most. And it's so true. Like whenever I try, not try to be, but whenever I am, you know, my Dominican self and someone tells me like, what are you, what are you doing? And I'm like, you know, there's that like shame around, like, you're not Dominican enough. I'm like, it hurts so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. And they start when we're, when we're so young. And like, the thing is, some of the people that really were the beginning of the, 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 the first dominoes are some of my favorite cousins. I'm like the youngest yeah. child of my mom's and the youngest child of my dad's. And I definitely have favorite cousins. And like, they were the ones that teased me first. And like now I tease as a way of showing love, like adult yeah, me yeah, does yeah. that, right? But a kid me, I was like, what? I'm too light-skinned to be Puerto Rican or my accent mm-hmm. is too uh, not good enough or what? Like, I, you know, as kids, we just want to fit in. And so I think, um, you know, two things. We could forgive, right? Forgive the, the yeah. people. I, you know, I had mm-hmm. to forgive them, right? As adults, I didn't have to tell them, but I just had to kind of forgive in my own process of that, right? But then this is something we could all do at our age right now is just to knock off the shaming in our community mm-hmm. because it really is hurtful. And the thing is, is that that's different than teasing. Shaming is different than teasing. And I know that people know the difference. And so here's an example. Mm-hmm. Um, I put out a video a few years ago now, and um, the video was about putting yourself first. And I think, you know, um, my husband's a copywriter, so he came up with this really great like title. And I think it was, and I knew it was, I knew it was, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm going to say audacious uh, to do this. And I'm like, screw it, let's do it. Right. And so uh, we called it putting your family first is the worst thing you can do. Right. So already any Latino, they're going to hate my guts. (laughs) 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 But hopefully they're going to watch the video. And the video was about, um, you know, putting your, um, the, you know, the, what we, everybody hears about putting your oxygen mask on first, yeah. you know, and it was like me kind of challenging people like, Hey, there's this norm right now. Um, and it doesn't work for everybody. And like, this is why putting yourself first is actually the most selfless thing you can do. And I kind of switched it all around and whatever. I thought it was very clever. Uh, but it, ha- I mean, like talk about most commented video next to my film, the trail of my film has like over 2000 comments. The, the comments on this video is like number two for like most commented piece of content. Right. And, um, and people were mean, really mean. And I remember uh, telling a friend of mine, like, I just want to take it down. And she's like, don't let, don't, don't take it down, but don't respond. Like let your community rise to the occasion. Let the people, you know, answer to the haters that are being so cruel. And that's what happened. People are like, no, she's right. Like I, you know, and they started talking about like, I didn't take care of myself. And, and I thought, you know, putting my, my, my kids first and my husband first and my family first uh, was everything. And now I'm sick in bed with fibromyalgia. <laughs> like people are not really specific. And they're like, I was just talking to my husband about this and I'm tagging him right now. So he watches this video. And so he can understand what I'm trying to tell him. And Anyway, it went back and forth. And then the absolute most hurtful thing that was written that to this day, you know, I'm just like, wow, like I just, man, it like cut like a knife to read this. And it was, you are the biggest insult to the Latino community. And like, I cannot like just, yeah. And I was like, 
what? <laughs> and I'm like, like you're, uh, I'm th this video is the biggest insult and you are, yeah, um, it really hurt. And that one took a long time to get over. And that one got a gazillion, like, no, she's not, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, but it didn't matter when anyone said, like, um, part of me, like, cause I feel like when, when I get hurt uh, by something someone else says about me, it's because in some way, shape or form, I believe it to be true. This is my belief. And it actually helps me because it helps me maintain the power, even if it's uh, power and taking responsibility for yeah. healing that part of me, if that makes sense. So yeah. I was like, wow, I'm really hurt right now. Like, and you know, doing this work and kind of uncovering these things, there's like the first kind of level of uncovering and the second and the third. And then it's like, no, like now I actually want to talk about some other stuff now that I have your attention. And that stuff is like poking the beehive. And a lot of people are not going to like it. And, but it's still very important, you know? And so um, I had to like be okay with being the person that's going to take the attention and the eyeballs and the ears that I've got to direct us towards some things that I believe we need to really look at as a community because there's some norms in our community that need an upgrade, that need a system upgrade, like an operation mm -hmm. system upgrade. And mm -hmm. uh, in very much the same vein as a compulsion or a need to tell the story of us um, and our identity and the, where we fit in, I feel the same level of responsibility um, to direct the attention towards some of the themes that are now that have come up because of the film and because of talking to even more people um, that really need addressing. Yeah, and, and I'm so curious, right? Because you went from that stage of like embarrassment and even like insecurity with even like the haters coming at you. But then you get to a point where in a lot of ways you embrace your culture, you begin to get the confidence. And like one thing is, to get the confidence, but you made a whole film that is empowering and you continue to do work, right? To empower people. Like, how did you get to that point where you were just like, you know what, this is me, take it or leave it kind of thing. Um, well, I have to say it really helps to, um, like it's one thing to have this idea or insight. And I am like the queen, like my Apple notes, or I don't know what they're called on this phone, but I, if I opened it and, and showed you, there were probably over a thousand notes. Like, <laughs> really? I am like, I gotta write this down. Oh my God, it's gonna go away, <laughs> right? So I have like all, and like they're not organized and, uh, and and maybe someone will find them and be like, oh my gosh, she's brilliant. No, I was just kidding. But like, uh, I, I write down a lot of ideas, right? And so, um, you know, the movie was like an aha moment. I've got to do this, right? And then for years and years and years, it just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. And so if there's an idea like that, that kept, keeps coming back, I believe it's for a reason, right? And I believe it's like hours for the choosing. There's a great book called Big Magic that specifically talks about this. And like, we're all literally given an assignment and, uh, and other people are too. So, um, so we need to pick it while it's pickable. And, uh, and then there'll, there'll still be other people that do something similar. Um, and if you grew up in the 80s, think about Pepsi and Coke and RC Cola, you know, like there was plenty of room for everybody, right? And so anyway, so I had this idea, then I go off and do it, right? Wait harder than it sounds, but go off and do it. 
And if you, and if, if the idea was like um, a thesis, like if I make a film trying to heal the hearts of 16 million Latinos, then I can be a woman of consequence and then my life will matter. And then, and I'm, that will, that makes me emotional, right? Then I'll feel like all this pain that I had to deal with as a kid will be, won't be for naught. Like I can literally say, like I took this, what I call a SHIT sandwich of a life and it made something really good that made people feel good and it made people feel like they belong. And if I could give that gift to people, then, then I will be happy, right? Then I can feel fulfilled. Then I can feel like my life is meaningful. Well, so the film comes out and then they go out on the road and I'm so scared. Like the thing that I don't talk about enough is how terrified I was for people to see the film because I thought I might have gotten it wrong because I didn't want people to pity me because of the things I went through as a kid because they were horrible. And, and growing up, frankly, a, a part of my childhood was beautiful and idyllic and, and I wouldn't trade any of it, right? So there was this beautiful, Part. And then there was this really hard, dark part. And by watching the first film, you're going to learn about some of those things. The second film, you'll learn about the rest. And, um, and as a kid, I grew up being pitied. And that's probably my most um, like to be pitied is one of the worst feelings. And there's a space when people look at people that they pity, you know, mm -hmm. and people are listening. They're probably like, what do I ever do that? I hope I don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really horrible. And so I thought I was setting myself up to be pitied. And, um, and that almost overshadowed the work of, of validating people. Right. It was such a mm -hmm. weird irony, but anyway, um, here's what happened. People stood up. I got standing ovations. People waited to talk to me in line at almost every screening. I have a joke that I was kicked out of almost every room that I ever screened the film in because the cleaning people would be like, we need to go home. We have to clean this room. You need to go over here. You can still stay, right? Or some of the cleaning people would be like, can I give you a hug before I kick you out so I can clean the room? Because they were in the back watching too. Like, I was in a screening in Boston and there was a guy in the, like it was a huge line and there was, you know, a big group of people and an aisle down the middle and we did the screening and then I did a really long Q and A and then a bunch of people, um, then there was like a reception. And so um, this was, you know, about 200 ish people in this room and, you know, they waited on in the aisle all the way back to the back of the room. And I remember seeing a guy and like, he was one of the catering guys in the back serving Coke and Pepsi's and not RC, because I think they went out of business. But anyway, you know, cocktails. And um, he waited in line and I was like, I wonder what he wants to see me. And he came up to me and literally he just said, I am, I wasn't supposed to work tonight. Like, um, like they called me last minute. And I've been having a really hard time because I was adopted from Guatemala into a family that's not Latino. And my whole life, I didn't know where I fit in. And then I get called tonight to be here to see this movie. And I just had to come up to you and say thank you. And, right? 
And if I told you that, like, that happened so many times, there were so many times, so many different people, so many different stories over the course of three years, because then the pandemic hit in year four. But yeah. after a while, um, it's like unquestionable. This makes a difference. And that's the gift I say. Like, I'm very fortunate because I, I made the sacrifices. I, I, you know, went through the valley, whatever, like, what do they call it like in the tech business when it gets really scary? There's like a saying for it. Like uh, they talk about it in like Y Combinator. Like so I heard, I heard somebody, it's like all entrepreneurs start and then they go through this valley, this deep, dark valley of death feeling. And then like some, most people will quit then and then some come out and they prevail or whatever. So I felt like I went through my own version of that financially, emotionally, every LA, right? <laughs> and then here I am like online in Boston and um, talking to a guy in catering and I feel like my life, it's like, wow, I like this worked, this worked. And um, all the sacrifices and all those, you know, the transformation, all the, all the things that I went through personally and emotionally was worth it because this guy gets to feel like he belongs. And it makes me emotional because, you know, because it, you know, pushing, getting a film made takes so much work. And especially when, you know, there's hardly any money. And, you know, in the film, you'll learn some of the financial sacrifices they made for it. And, yeah, so. Um, yeah. So, anyway, uh, where are my tissues? <laughs> I get really emotional talking about it because it really is, um, it's just, it's a feeling that I feel like is available to anyone, which is why a lot of my work that you'll see on Instagram, a lot of my posts is mm. trying to get people to like follow your dreams. Come on, you can do it. Like you can do it. It's going to be hard, but this feeling like you can't, you can't buy it and I wouldn't trade it for anything, you know? Yeah. No, hundred percent. And I'm sure that, Right. It's not just people that look like us that are watching your film and also even learning. Right. Like in many ways, you're educating um, an audience that didn't even know that this was a thing. You know what I mean? Like, I remember when I was having conversations at work and I was telling people like the extent of the code switching that I was doing. They were like in shock. They were like, there's no way like this is just you. Right. And I was like, no, no, no. Like other like everyone does this. And uh, in many ways, like they didn't believe me. So a lot of the stuff that I do, like, I'm, of course, I'm trying to empower people that look like us, et cetera, to be their most authentic selves and embrace everything of who they are. But another part of me is like also trying to tell people that don't look like us, like, hey, like this is a big problem that we need to raise yeah. awareness for. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's I think it's huge. And I love what you're what you're doing. It's really beautiful. Um, Thank you. And I do. I have to I agree with you. Like, like if it's, I always say it's a gift to our community, right? Our, my work is a gift to our community and right. like the cherry on top, the extra credit is when people outside <laughs> of our community, like when they can get it. Cause then it's like, okay, now we all can participate in this conversation. Cause like yeah. first we get validated and then we're understood and then compassion yeah. happens and empathy happens. And then that's like, that's really when, um, I would say the most is possible, you know? Um, so I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and no, yeah, hundred percent. And I know we're running out of time, so I'll finish with this last question, but obviously we're still continuing to go through our journey, right? It's not over, but 
I love that you're at the point now where you are just embracing all of who you are and empowering other people to people to do it. But when you think about your continued journey, what's one thing that continues to empower and inspire you to continue being your most authentic self? Yeah, so here's something that's like so unexpected that um, I would never have thought would be like the way that I would answer that question. And that is sharing it with others. Uh, in, and by encouraging them in a formal setting to achieve their dreams. And so I love working with women. I ferment, and especially moms and wives and Latinas that feel like there's so much of a burden put on us, um, you know, like with those cultural norms that um, dictate what we should be doing and how things should look. And oftentimes we're encouraged, or most of the time we're encouraged to get an education and do really great and ascend and get promoted and get all the things. But then also we're encouraged to start families and make sure our husbands are happy and our kids have everything they need and that our house is clean and that our the dishes are, you know, like it just never ends. And then like, if we want to do something with our life, if we have a big idea, like writing a book or starting a podcast or starting a business or making a movie, oftentimes that goes on the back burner. And so what gives me so much joy, aside from doing the work that I get to do every day, the creative work, is being able to support other women and in lifting them up, very specifically coaching them um, on, the, on what they need to continue making sure that they also have a life that they love too. And if that means that dishes have to stay in the sink or that, you know, sometimes um, someone's going to be mad in the family, so the floors aren't going to be perfectly clean, uh, beds won't be made or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like I offer a place, a safe place, it's called the Enya Dream Accelerator uh, for all of it. And so, and then I present myself, I'm certainly not perfect. I curse like a sailor, you know, I, I, my Instagram stories, you get to see my messy house, like, I'm not trying to be perfect. Like I know my mother would be so embarrassed if she watched them, but it's like, this is me. And I actually believe that um, if, I, if I can present me in my most authentic self, in my most authentic environment, um, having the bio that I have and, and getting to do the cool stuff that I still get to do. And if people get to see, oh, those two things can travel together. Like you don't have to be perfect and you can still have a great life and be successful and make money. Sign me up, right? Because that's what I wish that I had. So, yeah, 